Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and you're listening to, well, you're about to listen to 30 minutes of, you know, some hard-hitting, fun, exciting, all of the superlatives, science that we can cram into, yes, this time that we have together. And with me, I have, of course, Chris. Hello. Hello, Claire. Good to be here. Hi. Oh, it's good to be, it is good to be here, isn't it? It's good to be here and good to be talking science. And well, that leads me to my next question. What have you got for us this week, Chris? Well, Claire, um, as you probably know, this is a special time of year. Um, it's basically, it's Science Christmas. Oh, the second, not just National Science Week, second Science Second Christmas. Science Christmas. I mean, again, this International is... International Science Christmas, yeah, is that how you describe it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I forgot about uh-huh. National Science Week being Science Christmas. But this is a different kind of Science Christmas. This is like... Sure. If, again, it's kind of like a week-long celebration, I suppose, but only about a dozen people get <laughs> presents. So... It's... Right. But we all get to hear about... The, those people. Those persons, yeah. Um, yes, so it is Nobel Prize season, essentially. And so I am going to be looking at one of the Nobel Prizes, uh, not the Physics Prize, you might be surprised. <gasps> what? Yes. Um, like the Physics Prize was interesting. It was for, I don't know if you saw it, it was for attosecond physics using extremely short light pulses to be able to look at, say, you know, chemical reactions and molecules on the attosecond scale, which is like a billionth of a billionth of a second. So really, really tiny time terms. <laughs> mm-hmm. Time terms. Um, but no, instead, I'm looking at something else that is small, which is the Chemistry Prize, which sometimes people call the other physics prize, because <laughs> this one was also kind of a physics thing, but they gave them right. a Chemistry Prize, because let's face it, nothing nothing ever happens in chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a chemistry zing! And they're basically just out there. Don't listen to him. It's just a you spare deserve your on own the calendar. You deserve your own Nobel Prize. Well, so, um, something interesting has happened in the world of chemistry, or if you, or as you say, the second physics look, prize. Yeah, need I say any more than just the two words quantum dots? Yeah. The prize was it's awarded. Topical. It's for topical. It's topical. Yes. What do you know about quantum dots? Oh, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm waiting with bated breath to hear you your story. You said it was topical. Yeah, that doesn't mean I know anything about okay, okay, it. Fair I just enough, hear fair it enough. a lot. You know. Okay. It's in the zeitgeist. All right. Well, I will. We'll. We'll penetrate that zeitgeist, and we'll get to the. Try to get to. Maybe if not the bottom, at least you know the middle of quantum dots. I mean, so long as we get down to the quantum level, I'm fine. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and uh, Claire, speaking of getting down with things, what have you got? Well, um, there have been some other large um, feats and, uh, you know, 
things happening in the world of space. It's 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 very rare that a space story comes and goes, and um, and I'm the one that gets to cover it. Um, you know, it's normally yourself and Stu that put your hands up and and you know get in there with all the space news. But here I am covering the big space news, and that is the space mission Osiris Rex, um, which launched itself out seven years ago and has collected like to a, to an asteroid um, and has collected little asteroid pieces and brought them back to Earth. So um, I am going to be talking a little bit about um, the little guy, Osiris Rex, um, the mission and what it means and why it's important. Fantastic. Uh, it is important. Well, I mean, of course it is. You know, this is this is um, this is a fundamental understanding of you know chemistry and uh. biology of the universe, um, and um, and also, I guess, getting a really good idea about um, what what these asteroids are, and you know, we we just don't have the opportunity to be able to get. Um, quantities of asteroids in any other way unless they come to earth so yeah it's 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 big it's big okay i'm convinced i'm convinced (laughs) all right well on with the show Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And as I said in the introduction there, it is Nobel Prize season when the ghosts of science past visit us. I don't know. I'm trying to stretch that (laughs) metaphor perhaps a bit too far. Well, that would be the ghosts of science present, past, present and future, right? I mean, well, I mean, that's that's the Christmas story. They're normally awarded for like... uh, Oh, know, historical work, happened. yeah. They mm-hmm. don't tend to award mm-hmm. it for future work. Um, that's like the the Nobel Peace Prize is sometimes awarded for potential sure. future work. Um, I'm not going to name names there, but we won't go into that little path. Not this year's, not this year's, I should say. Now, this year's Nobel Peace Prize, good one. Okay, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and I'm talking about the Chemistry Prize, which caught my attention. Um, so this year it was awarded to. Three scientists, um, uh, Mungi Bowende, Louis Brew, and Alexei Ekimov, whose names I have mispronounced, I'm sure, um, for the discovery and synthesis of quantum dots. Mm. And so, you know, that is such a really good thing, using a really good term, quantum dots. I thought, I can't let that go. Uh, let's, so let's have a little bit of talk about what are quantum dots. Um, okay. Well, I mean, you, you definitely. So long as there's the word quantum in a Nobel piece, um, a Nobel Prize, you were definitely not letting it get away. No, absolutely, absolutely. Now you're most likely to encounter quantum dots these days in your TV. Is that right? Yeah. How so? And which part of the TV? Why? The what, are, what are they doing in there? They're they're just dotting around. Really? Yeah. So. Um, the quantum dots, essentially, they're little tiny nanoparticles. That's the name I suggest. So nanoparticles means they're on the order of nanometers, which a nanometer is a billionth of a meter, or if you like, a millionth of a millimeter. 
Is it right? Sure. Am I that okay. Right? Does it sound about right? Ten to the minus nine. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's okay. It sounds about right. And so, yeah, they're made out of just you know, a bunch of atoms, like a few thousand atoms joined together. Uh, but they exhibit unusual properties, and the main thing that they're used for is uh, their optical properties. So essentially, the they give off light. So you shine light of whatever color you want on a quantum dot, and it'll give off. Uh, a different color light depending on the size of the quantum dot. So it allows you to get very kind of vivid, mm. um, pure light of certain wavelengths of frequency, certain colors, uh, which of course is great if you want to make a nice, bright, colorful TV screen. Right. And this is pretty standard in TVs now. Uh, you'll see it. I think they often call it like QLED, you'll see in the display. Or they'll actually mention quantum dots. And everyone will go, ooh, it's got the word quantum in it. Uh, as you just did, Claire, it must mm-hmm. be good. Must be. Must be good. So, yeah, th- that's basically what it is. Um, it is the optical properties that are most interesting. Now, turns out that quantum dots or qu- these quantum effects have been around for a long time. Right. Um, they... In terms of like glass manufacturing, there has been this kind of notice in the past that you'll get these different colours in in glass depending on certain impurities are added to them. Um, there is actually a famous Roman cup, the Lycurgus glass, I think it is, which this little cup that's got carvings on it, and I think if the light shines through it, it's red. If the light shines onto it, it's green. So the, wow. it's a different colour depending on how the light goes interacts with it and that's found to be now i think due to the size of these kind of gold impurities in that one in particular Mm. but yeah it's been known for a while and there was first i guess investigated in a real um rigorous theoretical way by one of the laureates that we're talking about here um alexei ekimov who back in oh when was it it was in the 1970s essentially he was in the soviet union or the the former soviet union and he was working in optical lab and he was aware that certain kinds of glass with impurities would have different colors and you could add the same kind of impurities but you get different colors somehow Mm. And he realized that it's something to do with the size of the particles. And so he experimented with it and he managed to, yeah, to get different size ones. And he came up with a formula that showed how the light that was emitted depended on the size of these impurities and realized it was a quantum effect. Right. So essentially what's happening in there in these little kind of little particles, I think he had copper chloride impurities that he added to some glass. And it kind of acts like a semiconductor. Uh, in semiconductors, you have electrons can move around in them, but you can also have these things called holes, which is a lack of an electron. Right, okay. And so when an electron and a hole combine, the electron falls into the hole and it can give off light. Ah, gets stuck down the hole. Yeah, it's stuck down the hole. And it turns out when you've got these little tiny kind of quantum dots, then the the frequency that they they will give off depends on the size of the dot. So, it's, but it's not it's not the size of the dot. So we're talking about these these little crystals. They're on the order of say four or five nanometers, which is said is a billionth mm-hmm. of a meter. Visible light is in the hundreds of nanometers. So mm. it's not to do with the size; is directly the wavelength of the of the crystal. 
the uh, the crystals, not the wavelength of the light. It's just really the energy properties of the electrons and the holes interacting, which is though determined by the way that they sit in this kind of crystal. You with me? Right. Yes. So, yeah, so um, Ekimov did this. He was working, though, in the Soviet Union. He published his work, but no one in the West really saw it because there was this iron curtain, which was not transparent and mm. fluorescing. So uh, Louis <laughs> Brew was one of the other laureates. He was working at the Bell Laboratories in the United States, and he was actually working on something else. He was actually working on essentially nanoparticles of cadmium sulfide, and he was trying to use them to catalyze chemical reactions. Um, but he noticed that, that they had optical properties as well. And in fact, what he noticed was that he was producing these these little crystals, which were probably about uh, four and a half nanometers in diameter. When he left them on his bench overnight, they would kind of melt a bit and recombine and crystals would join together. And they'd grow to about 12 and a half nanometers. And so they had different optical properties depending on whether they've right. been left sitting out for a while so he realized he also realized that something was going on with the size of it relating to the optical properties and so he kind of independently discovered the same effect that ekimov had um so, but yeah but the both of these were not kind of commercially viable uses so um ekimov's he was looking at glass impurities in glass so basically his crystals were embedded in glass so you can't really do a lot with them and brew he could create these little crystals and they would be around a certain size but the actual size would vary you need to be able to have to get a pure light you need to have all the same size so the third uh laureate who was mungi Bowendi, he basically discovered a way to get a uniform size of of these crystals and he did this. Look, it was. Uh, I won't go into detail, partly because I don't want to waste too much time here. Also, it's complicated. It's chemistry. This one is legitimate chemistry, not entirely my thing. But essentially, what he was doing, he had like a kind of a hot solvent. He would inject the ingredients like the cadmium, the sulfide, in there, and they would start to form crystals in this solvent. Mm. But mm-hmm. when they did this by injecting this material into the solvent, it would lower the temperature. And so the tiny crystals would stop forming. And so then by raising the temperature again, he could get crystals to start forming again and control the size of the crystals. Uh So he basically made a really kind of simple, easy way of making quantum dots to the size that you wanted. Mm. And this kind of set off the whole use of them to create lots of different colors that that anyone could want. Mm -hmm. And hence the TVs today. There must be other other um, ways that they used apart from uh, large screen televisions. Look, it's I think it's still fairly early days, even though it's been around since the eighties. This this kind of technology is actually applied. Apparently, they can be used in some sort of uh, medical imaging, in that you can put these particles into tissue and then it will essentially glow with the light that you right. want it to by you know, shining a light on it. So it can be used in that sense as well. But I suspect there'll be other more things. You know, they sure. speculated stuff yeah. to do with, you know, electronics, you know, quantum communication, yeah, this sort of thing, yeah. solar cells. So we don't know yet what they're going to end up being used for. I guess there is a concern when you've got something like nanoparticles, are they going to perhaps going to be environmentally dangerous, hazardous? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know this is a concern that is with a lot of nano materials that are out there yeah i've done a bit of reading on this generally the view seems to be that these nanoparticles tend to be locked up inside tv screens 
So they're not getting out there into the environment, unlike some of the, say, the, the silver nanoparticles you might have heard about that get washed into waterways and these sort of things. Mm. Uh, when they're used, you know, silver nanoparticles are sometimes used as to, you know, have like antibacterial materials and that kind of yeah. stuff. So they're generally locked up inside TV screens. Um, so they're not directly hazardous to certainly to the person whose house they're in. And it becomes, you know, I guess, an e-waste disposal issue um the worry perhaps more is that the materials most of them are made out of things like cadmium selenium and these kind of these, some of these heavy metals that those themselves are not exactly good for the environment so if the materials get out and into the environment yes they mm. could be harmful but look the hope is that I guess in some ways they're going to be more environmentally friendly because they later have say brighter displays but using less energy but look, I think there is obviously a concern if your TV breaks and the nanoparticles get out and you wash it into the creek. So try not to do that, I guess, is the answer there. But um, look, apart from that, it is it is an emerging technology and it's something that probably we're going to see more and more of. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm... I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. All right. Hello, Chris. Uh, now, like I said in the introduction, you are, you're a big space fan, aren't you? You're a, you're, you would... You would identify as a space and um, astro enthusiast. I look, generally, but like space is really big. Um, like you talk, <laughs> I mean, you talked about how you know there's like space news. Yeah, but, your general tend to yeah. cover, but there's a lot of space news. There's a lot of stuff happens in space, and you've got to be selective. Yeah, you do. But did you hear the extraordinary news about Osiris Rex? Well, they brought they brought stuff back from an asteroid. I heard about that. They, but... they brought stuff back from the asteroid. I mean, like when I told you this earlier, you said, "Is that a dinosaur?" And I think you were joking because that's your sense of humor. But also, uh, you know, well, when I you just... first said Osiris Rex, I didn't. <laughs> took me a while to figure out what you're talking about. <laughs> that's right. Well, okay. So on September 24th this year, 2023, after a journey that pretty much, you know, it spanned billions of kilometres, um, NASA's mission, uh, OSIRIS-REx, achieved what, you know, it was very groundbreaking and had a lot of people around the world incredibly excited uh, because, you know, a very small black container which contained inside um, the largest ever sample of dust and rock from out of this world, an asteroid, um, returned to Earth for us to study um, into, you know, forevermore. So this is not, like you said, this is the largest ever sample, but it's not the first time that materials have been brought isn't, back from an asteroid, is it? It isn't the first time that um, it, anything has been brought back from an asteroid, but last time it was in the, um, it was in the sort of milligram um, amount, and this time it's in like... There's, there's, there's a lot of it. There's like grant, lot, okay. many, many, many. Yeah, many I just want to give a shout to the um the Japanese um space crews who did the previous missions, I believe. This yeah, because this is also the first US mission. Yeah. 
Yep, yep. So and it, so it was the Japanese missions, which I have to say, I'm sorry, I do not have in my notes the names of the Japanese okay. missions. But absolutely, Chris, shout out to the Japanese missions. Um, but, you know, this one is a lot more. What, what can I say? With the greater volume that it um, has brought back to Earth, it's going to set about a whole lot of new research into, you know, what sort of cosmic secrets are going to be revealed. Um, but let's start at the beginning. So OSIRIS-REx isn't just um, a funny, great name. Um, it, is, it is an acronym. It's short for Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith Explorer. <laughs> I, so there you go. I miss the days when it could just be called Osiris Rex and no one needed to ask any more questions. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we won't get too much bogged down in that. But um, it was initially conceived in the early 2000s um, and um, was given the green light by NASA in 2011 with a mission to rendezvous with a near-Earth carbon-rich asteroid. Um, now, this asteroid's name is Bennu, which is a pretty friendly name, I would say, for a near-Earth asteroid, um, especially when you think that or um, when you know that that part of the reason I was going to suss Bennu out is because we weren't entirely sure that Bennu wasn't going to impact on <laughs> yeah, but not for a few hundred years, isn't it? Like they, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but still, Bennu, it just it just sounds like um, a little golden retriever to me. Anyway, <laughs> so um, yeah, they they chose Bennu um, to to bring back a piece of of um, to Earth for scientific analysis. So presumably, if it's a near Earth, it means it does go past the Earth. Did they try to get it on its way past, or did they go out to it? when it was somewhere else or how does this work? Well, it was, it was chosen for its proximity mm-hmm. to, to earth. Um, so it is, yeah, it is heading, heading to earth. Um, but also as, um, as its status, um, as a relic from the early solar system. So, you know, it wasn't just the fact that it was, it was near. I think they knew that it was, um, carbon rich as well. So they really wanted to, you know, not just, um, not just get in there because it was close, but also Mm. because of what it was going to reveal to us. Um, Now, it took OSIRIS-REx about seven years to get to Bennu, travelling through space um, and navigating to to Bennu. Um, And then once it arrived, it orbited Bennu, so for an additional two and a half years. So this is just, you know, it, it, it just feels like out. a long time hanging out in just circling around. Well, maybe maybe it takes a while to get close enough. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and think about, I mean, I guess an asteroid is, you know, it's moving through space at a certain speed, but they had to meticulously map its surface. They had to gather data around what the density is, mm. what the spin is, and all that sort of information. So, yes, that, that, takes, that takes time. Um, 
It's not like in The Empire Strikes Back where you just fly your Millennium Falcon down into a hole in the asteroid and it's all... <laughs> if it's only, all this, yeah. right? Yeah, although, you know, I, like, I think you'll find in the, in, the, in the footnotes there is like a giant worm-like thing on Bennu. That oh, was, okay. That, they had to be careful of that, yeah, yeah. They had to be careful of the giant worm-like things, yep. Um, anyway, anyway so, so arriving on Bennu was the first part of the problem, um, but the next part of the problem it was that it actually, you know, trying to collect a sample... Um, you know, how do you do it? Do you land? Do you um, lower and collect a rope? It? Do you lower a bucket? Rope? Lower a bucket. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what they ended up doing, this was sort of is quite state of the art technology, but 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 just in terms of sort of like um, for for our sake to imagine it, imagine a spacecraft the size of a like a truck, a small truck, mm-hmm. um, and it it could enter into like a hummingbird like mode. So it was like like hummingbird right next to the asteroid, um, and and the idea was that the hummingbird was was going to slightly kiss the asteroid, slightly just kiss the surface. So presumably there's no atmosphere on Venus, so you're not like yeah. you're not actually a hummingbird. You can't like flap wings and stuff like that. You've got to actually kind of still kind of orbiting around. Are they like? Yeah, yeah, but there is a gravitational pull oh, on yeah. Um, um so you use but rockets yeah, yeah, and things. You, Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Um, and um, the beak of the hummingbird of the um, of Osiris Rex um, is an unfolding eleven foot long mechanism, and then it has a canister on the end. So um, um, when it went, when it went to pick up the sample of the asteroid, um, it gives a gentle blast of nitrogen, <laughs> and then picks up. Uh, what's on the surface of the asteroid and stores it safely in the protective capsule, uh, which is then uh, uh, heads back to Earth um, and is parachuted back into our atmosphere. So that's sort of the lovely journey Mm. that OSIRIS-REx made. But I guess, you know, that's the journey and that's sort of, that's the mission, but why do we need this asteroid dust? Um, and like I said before, Bennu's not just any asteroid. It's it's a rubble pile asteroid. Um, you, like I said, it's got a small chance of one day impacting Earth. Uh, so understanding, you know, how it does orbit, the dynamics of it is going to be uh, crucial information for us to understand further asteroids in our, um, in our galaxy, in our solar system. And asteroids hold vital clues about the history of our solar system and um, and many of them do predate Earth's existence. You've got that understanding of our solar system's history, but also they contain incredibly valuable resources. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sure there is very much a part of this that um, – that companies want to think about mining asteroids sometime in the future. So cobalt and platinum. Yeah, there was a report the other day about a new mission that's launched or is launching to a uh, metal asteroid. Right. I think it's in the asteroid belt. And it's quite a bit larger than Bennu from the sounds of things. But it's um, they're talking about how it's worth quadrillions of dollars if you could, like, mine (laughs) the whole thing. It's like... 
doesn't sound oh my god viable what is even that number like where do they gosh anyway yeah i mean it's it's all pretty far away sci-fi for us to think about now but i guess you know that's um that's another sort of reason on the list of of reasons to send osiris rex out there Mm. um you know check check what these asteroids have in terms of Potential um, potential compounds that are going to be helpful not just for us on Earth, but then also for us for for astronauts maybe on their way to to further further parts of the solar system. Um, and then also, I guess you know, asteroids are you know time capsules of what happened in the solar system, so we can we can understand more about what happened on Earth. Um, in terms of looking at the biochemistry of um, of of Bennu and any other asteroid, we we end up um, we end up getting. So um, yeah, with the return of Osiris Rex and its precious cargo from Bennu, um, we now have this sort of incredible opportunity to analyze the composition of the asteroid. There's an astrobiologist who has been leading um, the development of. Um, of the Osiris Rex mission, and um, yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of like set about for the next sort of thirty years of how, what they're going to be studying, what they're going to be researching and experimenting on with this um, incredibly precious cargo. Um, and and yeah, and the other reason that I guess you know we we really need to find out more about these asteroids is just in case another one pops out of nowhere and, um, you know, is is on a mission to impact Earth. So um, now we know that Bennu does not pose an immediate threat to Earth. Um, there could be others in the future. So with an understanding of what the composition is, um, you know, density and orbit and all that sort of stuff, we will definitely um, be better set in the future. So, yeah, there you have it. OSIRIS-REx mission to Bennu is complete. It's going to be on – it's going to now – it's going to turn around and um, be on the next mission to a further asteroid. Um, so that's – so keep a lookout for what OSIRIS's next mission is. Um, and, yeah, also keep an eye out for what some of these cosmic uh, – and, you know, universal mysteries are going to be uncovered now that we have a little bit of rock from an asteroid far, far from Earth. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 
3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.